Good morning, church family. Welcome to September. And happy Labor Day holiday to all of you. My message this morning is entitled, The Coming Apocalypse. No, I'm not going to try to talk about some spook movie. Today I'll be explaining the prophesied return of the Lord Jesus Christ in physical form here to planet Earth. And I'll be explaining the role that angels play in this event. Exciting stuff. Our culture has long had a fascination with the possibilities of UFOs. Interesting, in late May of this year, a New York Times article reported numerous sightings by Navy pilots of this strange phenomenon. These objects reached heights of 30,000 feet and flew at hypersonic speeds. One pilot saw one of them fly right past his cockpit and described it. Now, I want you to remember this in just a moment. He described it as a sphere encasing a cube. But get this, it had no jet engine and no exhaust plume. (laughs) What were they seeing? Well, biblical truth isn't given to science fiction, so I have to be exceedingly careful in conclusions, and just for the record, I do not believe in alien extraterrestrials, as commonly thought of. But I've long wondered if there's at least some possibility that what has been mistakenly thought of as UFOs are actually angel spirits appearing in materialized form. Hardly anybody sees angels, but on occasion they do show up, certainly in Bible times they did. Now listen to me, whether or not they are angels appearing in this form is beside the point. The Bible clearly teaches that angels are all around us all of the time, including in this room right now. You can't see them, but they are present. 1 Peter 1.12, they long to look into what believers are experiencing, gospel of grace. It is interesting to me to note that in the Old Testament prophetic book of Ezekiel, first chapter describes four angels and calls them living creatures. And they were accompanied by wheels churning within wheels. Remember that Navy pilot description. Later in the same first chapter of Ezekiel, when the angels moved their wings, it was the sound of many waters, a tumult, it says, like the sound of an army, which to me sounds like judgment imagery. Obviously, even natural phenomenon often portend judgment, whether it's the sound of a tornado moving across the Great Plains like the sound of a freight train, or as we're currently watching, a hurricane swirling like a gigantic top, devastating everything within the circle of its wheel-like circumference. These are expressions of Earth's groaning, like espresso profoundly in Romans chapter eight. We groan in our spirits, Paul said. We groan in our bodies. All of creation is groaning as a result of the curse that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three as imposed upon planet Earth through our first parent's sin. 
In Ezekiel 1, a study of the context reveals clearly that the wheel movement is a picture of God's judgment, first upon Israel, and then later upon the Gentile nations who persecuted Israel. And also later in that same first chapter, and I I just love this, I love this portrait. It's a picture of the pre-incarnate Jesus captured in the powerful imagery of fire, not unlike we just sang about from the Revelation song, referring to Revelation chapters one and four. And here is how this word picture is described from the very last verse of Ezekiel 1, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And look what happened to the prophet. Hmm. When I saw it, he said, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So where are you going with this, Kurt, you ask? Well, first of all, this is from my years of experience in watching what's happening, especially in Western Christianity. I sense that the 21st century church needs to recapture a vision of the glory of the Lord that will bring us back to our knees in an awesome respect of Him. We need to return to what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Now, let me show you a diagram that I think is inclusive of various components. The fear of the Lord starts with terror. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It then moves to awe, to reverential respect, to saving faith in Jesus Christ, what we call trust, and finally to obedience. You don't fear the Lord unless you obey what he says. All of these equal the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's, there's a horrific need in our generation for the fear of the Lord. In fact, this is what Peter said about our generation of wickedness and immorality. He says, and I'm quoting now, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Do you remember the vision of Isaiah in his sixth chapter when he saw Jesus Christ high and lifted up, that as per John chapter 12's explanation? And when he saw the Lord Jesus high and lifted up, pictured as a king in the temple, it said his train filled the temple. Now you got to understand this. The robe of this train filled the temple. The longer the train, the greater the glory of the king. This train filled the temple because it's talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all around this king in this vision that Isaiah had, the throne of Christ was surrounded by seraphim, angels whose name means burning ones. The point, those closest to God are most on fire for him. And these angels spoke antiphonally to each other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, that is the God of angel armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. Every atom in this universe points to the glory of Jesus Christ, who is creator God, Colossians chapter 1. Why did they say three times, holy, holy, holy? It may be a nod to the tri-personality of God, the Trinity, 
But more likely, in the Hebrew language, when something is mentioned three times, it raises it to the superlative degree, the highest degree. God is absolutely in Christ, as well as the Spirit, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's absolutely transcendent, entirely above us, distinct from us, different from us. So today, my first objective is to get God up. Get him up. We have to have a high view of God if we are to rightly relate to him. And secondly today, we need to understand that Jesus will return for deliverance of the saved and judgment of the lost. Again, I say the doctrine of Christ's return will be my primary emphasis here this morning. So let me engage you interactively in a moment. Many of you would profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, do you genuinely, actually believe that the same Jesus who walked this earth 2,000 plus years ago is coming back in physical form to walk on this globe again, that he is going to return? Do you really believe that? And if you do believe that, if I do believe that, how would it be demonstrated in our lives? 2 Peter 3 speaks to that issue. Scripture tells us that Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after he was resurrected. He ascended to heaven from a mountain just outside of Jerusalem, just to the east, called the Mount of Olives. And as he went up into the clouds, two angels, more angels, two angels appear, and they talk to the people, including the disciples who were there gathered, and they said, why are you standing here gazing? This same Jesus, which you've seen go up into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. Friends, Jesus has to return. If he came the first time in fulfillment of Bible prophecy, must he not come a second time in fulfillment of Bible prophecy to all who look for him without sin unto salvation? This is really staggering. Prophecy occupies one-fifth of all of Scripture. And the promise of the second coming of Christ occupies one-third of that one-fifth. Which tells me that we need to meditate more and talk more about the return of Jesus Christ. As you've heard me say earlier, Today is a standalone message entitled The Coming Apocalypse. My text is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me there. If you don't, we'll flash the words on the screen. The word apocalypse is used in our seventh verse of our text. It's translated revealed. And that, that same word appears in the name of the last book of the Bible. Can you tell me, congregation, what's the full name of the last book of the Bible? The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The the word revelation means it's the word apocalypse or apocalypsis. It means revealing or unveiling. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus Christ in his return unveiled to a world that is not expecting him. Whoa. Whoa. We pick up our text in the middle of an assurance that persecuted believers will be relieved of their suffering when Christ returns. So let me read the text beginning in verse 5. Paul to the Thessalonians, this is evidence 
of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And they were suffering. They were being persecuted. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, he will right the wrongs. He will mete out judgment. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. There's our word, apocalypse, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There's the angels again. And what's going to happen? Whoa, get a load of this. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the apocalypse of Christ. And we begin with the bad news. Number one, if you're taking notes, excuse me, Jesus will bring his angels with him to judge the unbelieving, I repeat. Jesus will bring his angels with him to judge the unbelieving. The language is fairly graphic, descriptive. Look at this language of judgment again. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, suffer the punishment, eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. These are devastating images written to warn a certain class of people. Who who are these people? Verse 8 identifies them as those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they reject his claim to lordship in their lives as evidenced by the persecution of the saints. Theirs will be a just retribution. Just for the record, what does the Bible teach about the end for those who know not Christ? Well, the Bible clearly teaches eternal separation from God in a place of darkness called hell. This at the return of Christ. In a week, my wife and I will travel to the Pacific Northwest. I will speak on the Oregon coast, a little town called Cannon Beach, known for Haystack Rock. We will speak to a, a conference of pastors and wives to encourage them. It's called the Refresh Conference, speaking five messages. We'll walk the beach there, maybe a little broader in Oregon, but we'll have our eyes peeled because we've been warned before the fact of phenomenon in the state of Oregon, warned by Oregon Parks and Recreation, a phenomenon known as sneaker waves. These rogue waves come in suddenly with no warning, perhaps 15 feet tall, people not looking for them, expecting them. They sweep in, grab the beach walkers, pull them out to sea to a watery grave. It happened not that long ago in the state of Oregon. Jesus grabs that same kind of imagery in Matthew chapter 24. He's talking about his return. And he uses the illustration of the Noahic flood. I hope you believe 
in the worldwide flood. I do. I'll be saying more about it in a moment. But the world was not expecting this flood. They'd never seen it rain before. The great deluge of the deep, the subterranean caverns unleashing their flow of water. They weren't expecting it. And many were taken away, almost everyone in judgment. And Jesus likened that to his return. He said, when I come back, two men will be in the field. One will be taken in judgment. The other will be left. Two women will be grinding mill, uh, wheat at a mill, and, and one will be taken in judgment, and the other one will be left. And this is what Jesus warned. So watch, you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. Let me go deeper, wrestle with a hard issue. Why must the judgment be so severe? Why cannot God simply overlook the unbelief? And here's the answer. Because of God's nature, the nature of the punishment is directly related to the nature of the holiness of the one sinned against. God is awesomely holy. And it's also directly related to the nature of the sacrifice sinned against. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, i.e. rejecting the substitutionary sacrifice of sins by Jesus, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, verses 26 and 27. Do you wrestle with that, Kurt? Yeah, I wrestle with that. Do I revel in sharing this truth? No. You know, honestly, there's a part of me that revolts at even the thought of such judgment. But listen to me. Like a doctor that is confronted with a terminal patient, my allegiance to God's Hippocratic oath will not allow me to withhold from you the gospel truth that would spare you the coming judgment. If I really love you, I will tell you the truth of the holy God in heaven. I come to you today to urge you and your family, as did the two angels in Genesis chapter 19, to Lot in his family about the coming conflagration. He warned them, flee the wrath to come. And so I would warn you and your family. You watch TV. You're on the internet. Surely you see and feel the enveloping moral darkness in our nation in our world, the news even right now from yesterday, filled with stories of horrific tragedies. Can you not relate to Lot's vexation of soul when scripture says, quoting out from 2 Peter 2, and if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, that he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. That's Bible. I grew up on a farm between Rock Valley and Sioux Center, Iowa, way up in the northwest corner in Sioux County, a Dutch community. We lived on the farm there, and dad and mom didn't take many trips. Now when you milk cows, you don't take many trips. But I remember one time we left home to go to the Iowa Great Lakes to Lake Okaboji, and we went to a specific place, which is today called the Okaboji Bible and Missionary Conference. They brought in nationally known speakers, and that year they brought in a man who's now gone to heaven, the late Richard DeHaan. His dad, M.R. DeHaan, established radio Bible class, RBC Ministries. 
They're known for our daily bread. Some of you read that. Richard Don, a great man. And I remember the message. I was just a, a young man. This is a long time ago. But I still remember his message from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Noah, being warned of things not seen as yet, moved by fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world that did not. I already told you early, I believe with all my heart in the Genesis flood, the entire globe was inundated and all organic creatures destroyed, save for Noah, his wife, his three boys, and their wives. You say, you really believe that? All you have to do is look at the sedimentary layers of fossils and all the fossil fuels. There was a sudden burial of massive amounts of organic material that creates the oil fields from which we're drawing Plants and animals and human beings, maybe numbering into the millions or billions, suddenly buried. The fossil record bears witness. When Richard DeHaan spoke on this, let me tell you, that fear of Noah, he said, motivated him to turn to Christ. And frankly, it motivated me to turn to Christ as a youth. And I pray it will motivate you too and if you do turn to Christ, then, wow, I move now from the bad news to the good news. All the way to the rest of this message, good news. Verses 10 to 12. Here it is, number two. Jesus will bring his angels with him to deliver the believing. And just as I featured the descriptive biblical phrases for the judgment of the unbelieving, let me feature the descriptive biblical phrases for the deliverance of the believing. It all starts with the qualifier when he comes on that day. What does he give us? Here it is. To grant relief to you who are afflicted. Are you afflicted? There's relief coming. To be glorified in his saints, verse 10. To be marveled at among all who believed, verse 10. And in verse 11, to effect our change to Christ-likeness, the phrase from Scripture, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Time does not permit me to explain all the details of Christ's return, but I must explain that when Christ returns, he will first of all return for his own, and then later he'll return with his own for the judgment I've just spoken of and for the establishment of his kingdom here on the earth. In a sense, we will be taken out of this world before the destruction comes upon this world, Admittedly, theologians debate the timing of the rapture, but our being taken up cannot be debated. Let's go back a few chapters to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verses 13 through 18, where we find some of the most comforting words in Scripture. Verses often read at funerals or graveside services. Let me read them for you. They'll be in the screen too. Again, to these same Thessalonians, Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Asleep is a euphemism for believers who've died. We're only asleep, he says, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we certainly do, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's the term again. They, they were afraid that somehow their dead loved ones would, wouldn't make it or wouldn't be resurrected. So he's addressing that issue here. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that 
we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We won't beat them to the punch. They're going to rise first. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, there's the angel again, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. Why is the blessed hope of the rapture so encouraging? Three reasons. Here we go. Number one, because this is the time of the resurrection of our redeemed dead. I'll see my dad and my mom again, who are believers up in the glory land. This past Friday, they would have celebrated 73 years of marriage. I can't talk to them, but I prayed on Friday, Lord, would you tell dad and mom I love them? I miss them, but I'm going to see them again in resurrected form. I will see all my relatives and my friends, if they're in Christ, in bodies that look like they did on earth, only perfected. I told you last week we just had a 10th grandchild born, and we've learned recently we have an 11th one on the way, but we also have six babies up in heaven by way of miscarriage, and I believe that I will meet them and see them in the bodies they would have possessed had they not left for heaven early. All the redeemed dead will have new bodies, but so will we who do not have to die. We will all be caught up together with bodies fashioned like Christ's. The second reason the blessed hope is so encouraging, number two, because this is the time we will see Jesus face to face in all of his glory. Keep your eyes on the prize. Jesus Christ is the prize. He's the one that will make heaven heaven. Without him, no heaven. Text says he comes with a shout, literally a command. It's from the Greek word kalutsma, and it re, it's used to refer to a military command given with authority and urgency. No doubt employed in, in John chapter 11 when, when he raised Lazarus from the grave, his good friend. He went to that, to that grave and he said, roll the stone away. And then he commanded, here it is, here's the, here's the shout, the command. Lazarus, come forth. Hopped out of that grave, all wrapped up in grave clothes. (laughs) Lazarus, who had been dead, came forth in his grave clothes. He said, loose him and let him go, because he was dead, came back to life. That's what it's going to be like. Jesus said, my sheep, they, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and neither one any man pluck them out of my hand. Michael, the archangel, here's the angel, will be right there with him, leading millions of angels in coming for us. The voice of the archangel will prompt all of them to give a mighty shout with him, perhaps speaking or singing praise in one great angelic choir, not unlike those angels on shepherd's field in the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2. And Job 38, 7 gives a foretaste of this. It records how at the creation of the world, the morning stars sang together, and listen to this, 
and all the sons of God, which is a reference to angels, shouted for joy. <laughs> you know what lies ahead for us in Christ? It's a joy. It's just eternal joy. It ought to put a smile on your face. Oh, what joy when we see Jesus and all of our guardian angels, which we have never seen, which, by the way, is referenced in Hebrews 1.14. I believe all of you have at least one guardian angel. Depending on how fast you drive, you may have more than one. <laughs> you haven't seen them, but they've been there in the car watching over you. But all these guardian angels will show up physically to escort us to heaven with shouts of joy. Wow, what a sight. And verse 16 explains that the trumpet of God will blast revelry to wake up the dead and call the living to fly together into the heavens. And by the way, the action here described as caught up, Greek harpazo, means to seize suddenly, to snatch and take away. It will happen in a moment, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is that? It's the split second of time it takes for light to reflect off of the eye. Just like, ah, you're gone. Transformed. And we will be caught up into the clouds. By the way, it's not the atmospheric clouds of rain. We'll be caught up into the Shekinah cloud of God's glory. That, that glory cloud will envelop us, invade us, permeate us throughout the remainder of eternity. Absolute knowledge of God through and through your being. <laughs> this ought to motivate us. It ought to change us. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. First John 3, verse 3. Finally, the third reason the blessed hope is so encouraging, I'm going to go slow here, because all of our problems and all of our separations will be forever a thing of the past. We will dwell with the Lord forever. Would you all say forever out loud? Forever. That's a long time. All the, the pain of the sin-cursed planet will be gone forever. All the evil of this wicked age will be put down forever. Our new home will be the new Jerusalem in which dwells righteousness forever. Forever. <laughs> and we will be with our loved ones who are in Christ forever. You know, we were never meant for separation. That's what sin caused. But if we are in Christ and they're in Christ, we, we will be reunited. I've got to tell you, I've got time to tell you a story. In the little church in Sioux Center where I attended, it no longer even uh, has its doors open, unfortunately. It was a tiny little church. Uh, we had an old couple uh, named Henry and Ann Mao. As a lot of Dutchmen in that generation, they'd been married for probably over 60, 70 years, <laughs> uh, they spoke with a Dutch brogue, Henry, and his wife, Anne, and she was the first one to go home to heaven. And I still remember, I was just a, maybe a young teen at most, and I stood in the foyer of that little, 
little tiny church, that tiny foyer. And at, at the service, Henry was downstairs with the pastor and family, and they came up for the, after the pre-service prayer meeting. And he, he paid his respects to Anne, who was lying there and stayed in her casket. And he went over to her, and he started to lift her body, which was obviously resistant, stiff. And it's goodbye. And he laid her body back down, and he started to walk away. And then he caught himself, and he said, back at the side of the casket, no, no, Anne, it's, it's not goodbye. It's only good night, and I'll see you in the morning. Because believers only sleep in Jesus until the resurrection. So my dear struggling friends, who are so pressed down, would you take a deep breath? And remember, there's a better day coming. But only for those who know and love Jesus. So the real question is, do you? Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sins and believed the gospel that Jesus took the wrath for you on the cross, for your sin, and rose again, and has promised to return? Have you invited him into, a, into your life? Have you trusted him and committed yourself to him by faith? If you trust him today, he will guarantee your ticket to that heavenly fight up to the glory land. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know I speak to a lot of folks many of which I've had relationship with behind closed doors who are hurting, struggling, beleaguered, despondent. Help them to choose by faith today as I urge them in the office to believe that a better day is coming soon because Jesus Christ is going to return. May it put a smile on their lips and a spring in their step to keep on keeping on. Lord, we, we sometimes wonder in, in our doubt, does the Lord Jesus Christ really have the power? Is he worthy to open the scrolls, the title deed to the universe and reclaim it in overcoming the enemy? And the answer is, he is. Will God ever come and dwell among us? Will we be with him and all of wickedness forever put aside? And, and will he come back and live with us forever? And the answer is, of course, he, he will. I pray that you'd help those who don't know Jesus right now to reach out by faith and say, Jesus, I want to go there. I want to be with you. I repent of my sin. I trust in Christ. And to those believers who are really struggling, oh, God, give them faith to believe even as we sing this song, to answer these questions in the affirmative. Thank you that you are worthy. We give glory to Jesus who has promised to return. We pray in his name. Amen.